The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Startup life can be really exciting. At LinkedIn, we've just come out with our annual list of the startups people want to work at most. I've been very involved with this project. These are companies like DoorDash and Brooklinen that are on fire. Join one and your whole career may get a great push forward. But of course, startups are risky. Most never make this list. Many don't make it at all. Joining one can be a gamble. You have to be smart about it to pick the right company and to join at the right time. So how do you do this? Today's guest is Aisha Evans. She runs the self-driving startup Zooks. It was on our list last year. And it didn't qualify this year because it got bought by Amazon last summer. Aisha chose to join an interesting company at an interesting time. Her career journey and the story of how she got this right traces itself to three things. First, Aisha was a curious kid, a tinkerer and a traveler, who put her entrepreneurial spirit to work wherever she was. Next, she was judicious in her timing. She waited to join a startup until she'd exhausted her learning opportunities and shored up her safety net in corporate life. And then finally, critically, she chose wisely. Here's Aisha. I was born in, uh, in Senegal. Uh, so um, uh, that's in West Africa. Education is really important there. So there was an infrastructure for education. At a young age, I noticed that, uh, you remember those clunky VCRs? Oh, uh, yeah. That would be broken all the time. I would take them apart, fix them. Um, when I was in, uh, then I, from there I moved to Paris um, to study. And then I would sort of bounce back between the two comp- uh, continents. Remember also, when you're going between Senegal and France, you are seeing what technology enables you are seeing what opportunities it brings. You are seeing access to knowledge on both ends, by the way. And then you use it to solve problems. I think that's what technology is uh, is about. And so very early on, I could see that. And then that translated into a lot of math and physics. And by the way, philosophy too. Uh, I always tell people, if you pay attention, at least in France, uh, some of the most famous philosophers are also great mathematicians. I think that there's a linkage there. And then from there, I moved to the U.S. Uh, basically, we got to the point where in France, my uh, my father just had, um, shall we say, too much influence on me and didn't really like the output. And uh, so started to want to get involved too much. And the, the U.S. was uh, a way to escape that. But it was also a way to study um, uh, computer engineering, which back then in France, you could do electrical engineering with a minor in computers. But the U.S. was clearly, clearly ahead. And uh, his only condition was that I needed to be in Washington, D.C. And I was like, fine, no problem. And that's how I ended up in the States and lived on three continents before essentially even becoming an adult. Aisha, I, I love the way that you framed your, your father's commitment to your career choices. Uh, what did your family want for you? They wanted me to sort of marry somebody from Senegal and make them proud at home. But that's just not what ended up happening. That's not what I wanted for myself. So you came to the United States. You then started computer engineering. Mm -hmm. And then 
as I understand it, you started a restaurant. How did that happen? Uh, it's really funny. So I came into a, a little bit of, uh, of money. Uh, I had also already met my uh, now husband. And uh, talk about your passion, um, sort of taking stuff and reorganizing it and making something disruptive out of it uh, actually relates to cooking for me. And I love to cook. And uh, so uh, uh, when it comes to African food, you can't find it very easily. So you have to make it. Uh, people told me I was a good cook. I enjoyed cooking. So I confused my love of cooking with running a restaurant. So yeah, I, we opened this restaurant. And uh, But let's just say within a year, I kind of realized that restaurants actually have nothing to do with cooking. Yeah. Let's not call it a mistake. Let's, let's call it a learning that a lot of people need to discover for themselves, which is that like whatever the heart of the passion is, it doesn't always translate directly when you try to develop that passion into a career. I learned the most about leadership uh, in, in that restaurant. It's a very interesting situation because, yes, the cooking and sort of the drinks are the product, but who delivers that product to your customers, meaning the customer interface, are actually waiters and waitresses, um, busboys, and then is the famous dishwasher in the back. So to be successful, you have to turn your plates a few times and there's a dishwasher and he's constantly loading, unloading, drying and what have you. So waiters and busboys, you can be one down or two down and you can make it. But the dishwasher, even if you have to, if both of them basically decide not to work or don't do a good job, you're basically done. <laughs> and so that and that bad event percolates through your evening. And so learning how to motivate people who back then made, I think, five to six dollars an hour. It, we spent a lot of time in how do you motivate people? How do you make them part of the, the success? How, how, how do you get their buy in? And that I learned a ton through that restaurant. Yeah, I have to imagine, you know, one of the challenges of managing people is that you have to learn how to incentivize people whose incentives are just so different than your own. It's not always that useful to just think, well, what would I want? And it's not just about money too, because no matter how much money people make, they want more, they want something different or what have you. They take it for granted, but that doesn't mean it motivates you. So you actually have to go hunt for it. You have to earn it. And then on top of it, how do you earn their discretionary energy? Yeah, that discretionary energy, that's the commitment to connect to your job as a a way of being with a sense of purpose rather than simply phoning it in. Exactly. Yeah. Your career in the restaurant business didn't last long. So no. what happened next? I kind of was like, yeah, like computers a lot more. Let's keep cooking for, for home. Uh, so uh, graduated. Then first decision was where to live. Uh, and plan, this, this is important when you start your career, plan not just for the first job which we had, but if we didn't like that first job, were there other jobs there? And we also didn't want to be poor. So somehow we ended up in Austin, Texas. My, my uh, husband got a job there first, and then uh, I followed. And uh, first went to uh, sort of work for a big company that I won't name because it really didn't last long at all. And because I was just like, I don't like this. I, I literally felt like I wasn't going to learn. I was just going to be a cloud in the wheel forever. And then uh, back then you had the Sunday paper. So found uh, Brook 3 because they had a cool ad, basically. Called them. They told me that uh, they were a big startup. And they basically said, we don't hire uh, people just out of school. Uh, for whatever reason that they never explained, called me back. 
and uh, had an interview where I was so nervous that in the middle of the interview, I actually switched to French apparently and didn't realize it. And so they said, hey, you're speaking French. And I was like, oh, sorry. And <laughs> I ended up working there. And one of uh, the lucky things is uh, uh, I was one of the youngest engineers with a very experienced crew that just was determined to also have me succeed and really let me do work, take on assignments. Anytime I did well, gave me more and stretched me and helped me through it. And then about four years in, they said, hey, there's a weird thing with you. Yeah, you're, techni you're technical and you enjoy the core engineering work. But they said, you have this knack for uh, making people do things. We think that you should uh, also uh, manage and then gave me a small team and then that got larger and larger. And then, yeah, my career took off from there. But I am curious as you look back at that, you know, you had a set of gifts around your technical abilities and a set of gifts around your potential for managing abilities. Was one more important than the other? I think that uh, they were equally important because um, I, I hope a lot of engineers will, uh, will uh, relate to this. When you're an individual contributor, an engineer, I know we say we don't compete, but we unconsciously do. You want to be the best in the room. You, you want the toughest problems and you want to keep just succeeding. And so there's the pressure when you're told you're going to management, there's the pressure of, wait, I'm a good IC, but I don't know that I'm going to be a good manager. For me, one of the toughest transitions, and I credit, credit a lot of sponsors and coaches, was to switch from being the best doer to enabling the team overall collectively to have the greatest output. And that's nerve wracking because that means that there are behaviors that you have to work on that are not natural. Just because you have the answer in the first team meeting doesn't mean you give the answer. How do you work with the team to get to the answer? Just because you think you have the best answer, well, the team may come up with a better answer. And that doesn't mean you're dumb or falling away from the technology. So that whole being the best doer to being the best enabler, was a, that's where my butterflies came from. First, can I do this? And is this the end of the end, or the beginning of the end? Or uh, am I going to be able to, to, to really drive uh, the team? And, and then be in a situation where I, I enable them and I'm okay about that. Aisha referenced this need to feel butterflies. She said it a few times while we were talking. And so I asked her what that meant to her exactly. I mean, both at work, but also in life. It's a sense of purpose, a sense of leaving things um, in a better state that you found them. A lot of people think about money as the outcome, but I, I really think about what happens when you leave this earth? Like, did you leave it better? Did you contribute to society? So for me, the butterflies always come into come come from uh, achieving not just for me, but with a sense of purpose and leaving things better than I found them. And, you know, you always also ask yourself, where's your ceiling? Yeah. At what point are you not part of the solution? Or at what point do you make the wrong choice, like the restaurant? And again, I learned a lot. So from failure, we also learn. But it's sort of managing through that. And I tell people, yeah, I have official performance reviews, but my performance review or my life, total life performance review is every night when I'm brushing my teeth. Mm. It's really, did I know, did I do the best I, uh, I know how? And did I do the best I could? Did I do right by people or as much as I knew? 
those are the things that are important. People tease me that I sleep a lot. I mean, I can sleep like there is no tomorrow. But guess what? When when that uh, review at night doesn't go well, then I don't sleep. And that's just not worth it. Yeah. I love to hear you articulate that because you work in an industry that has prided itself over the last 30 years in particular with the rise of the contemporary Silicon Valley on on making things that make the world better, but also has had to take a hard look at the way that it has been naive in doing so and maybe moved too fast towards making new things at the expense of making new things that people need. And I'm just curious what it feels like for you right now to to work with purpose against that backdrop. I love how you characterize it as naive because I, I really don't think anybody's evil. So I think when it comes to technology, it's important to see um, where we're succeeding as an industry and then where we're either making mistakes or being naive, we're just going to have to correct yeah. and learn. And by the way, newsflash, when we do that, we'll still make new mistakes. That's just the rhythm of life. And I think we need to accept that and make it a little bit more conversational as to what makes sense versus what needs to be corrected and, uh, and go from there. On balance, I think that technology has provided a lot more than, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, than it's destroyed. And I mean, I think about it even in, uh, with respect to where I am now at Zooks, but people talk about uh, obviously the environment, efficiency, congestion, uh, all of these di- <laughs> less fatalities, right? And yes. practice. And that's true. We will do all that. But I also think about economic access. Yeah. I think that these machines are not going to care. I mean, this is a robotaxi. It doesn't have a human making choices. And so they are not really going to care what neighborhoods they go to. If we make it super affordable, then it should open up economic access for, for many who today don't, don't, don't have that. Now, I'm sure we will also make mistakes. Everybody does. So look at it on balance and then celebrate and sort of water the plant for what's going well. And for what's not going well, ask ourselves, how did it happen? What's really going on? What should it be? What has to be true? And start working on that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan... TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. My guest today is Aisha Evans, who runs Zooks. I asked her how the experience of working at Intel compared to a startup. Um, look, I love Intel. Uh, I, uh, I spent 12 really good years there. By the way, they weren't easy. I, I want to be very clear about that because a lot of people are like, wow, that's a storied career. I'm like, you know, a simple little example. I had 14 bosses in 12 years. That's oh, not gosh. Well, there are reorgs and this and that and what have you. Uh, but no, I uh, spent a lot of uh, time working on, uh, on wireless. And then the last three years, uh, sort of working on uh, the transformation it's going through from PC centric to data centric. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Learned a lot met a lot of brilliant people, made a lot of friends, um, and it was really fun. But one of the things that happened was uh, it also forced me towards the end to say, what do I really want as a next step? 
Eventually, I was like, well, I don't think I want to work for another big company ever again. I said I wanted something impactful um, that was really geared towards the future. I feel like I've earned it at this point. I wanted it to be private. I mean, the public company sort of stage is a lot of pressure when you have, uh, especially and time, especially when you have young kids. Yeah. And then uh, I wanted also to work with founders that needed somebody like me, meaning who could operate at scale and sort of bridge technology and getting to market, not because their board told them they needed somebody like that, but because they inside of themselves feel felt that they needed something like that. And yeah, Zooks basically ticked all the all the boxes uh, in terms of uh, its mission. How big was Zooks when you got there? And and how did you make the decision about the size of the company? So I, I knew that super early wasn't for me. I felt that that stage had passed in my life. Uh, and so uh, I needed something that had the baseline technology already ready. And then really was on the cusp of figuring out how to go to market. I didn't really have a headcount number or anything in mind, but that was sort of what was my basis. And uh, Zooks was exactly there. It also needed to have what I call a strong premise. I mean, Zooks really f- believes, and I believe, cor- I, I know that's correct, that the model of uh, individually uh, owned and driven cars is, is breaking down, essentially. And you could already see signs of it with uh, the rise of mobility on demand, right? The Ubers and Lyfts and DDs of the world. And, and I also felt that it was transformative from a societal standpoint. So when I joined the company, if I remember correctly, it was maybe around five or 600 people. And now we're roughly around uh, 1,000 people or so. But uh, the, the stage it was at was really important because uh, we already are driving in the city from a software, in, well, in San Francisco, Las Vegas, Foster City, uh, from a software stack standpoint. And... Uh, once you're inside, maybe that's why people call us secretive and buzzy. Uh, we already have the purpose-built vehicle built and, and driving and passing crash tests and, and all of that good stuff. It, it should be said about Zooks in particular that there were many startups who were trying to do a piece of mm. of what Zooks was trying to do. But you were trying to provide the, the vehicle, the software, and the model. So soup to nuts, right? Every time in history that the driver for a vehicle changed to transport goods or services or people, every time the driver changed, the vehicle was re-architected to fit the driver. So if you think about horse and carriage, where you had essentially the horse and then some a human directing the horse and then the carriage behind them, when we went to the internal combustion engine and it changed to a human being. The vehicle was re-architected to fit the human driver. And if you, for a minute, don't think about the make or brand of a vehicle, but just think about the architecture of a vehicle, the fact that you have a windshield, the fact that you have a steering wheel, the fact that you have sort of the, the, the console and the command of the vehicle around the driver, the fact that the seating arrangement are so that the other people are sitting either, one person sitting next to the driver and the other person sitting behind the driver, so they don't, uh, shall we say, distract them, right? So if we agree that AI now is going to be a driver and more and more going forward, to us, it's only logical that you would then re-architect the vehicle to make it easiest for AI to drive, to make it safest for AI to drive, 
And so we don't think about it like we're building a vehicle or we're building a car. We are re-architecting the vehicle in order to make it easiest for AI to drive. Back to the founders. Mm-hmm. As as job seekers are surveying startups, they're looking at founders to try to discern, can you sell me on the idea? But also, can I trust that you're building a company that's going to be a good place for me to build my career and to work? Is it diverse? Are you putting together a group of people who are going to allow me to flourish and contribute? So how did you think about those things? I follow my instincts a lot. So first of all, uh, initially, when I heard about Zooks, I was just like, I had sort of the same reaction. I'm like, wow, that sounds kind of super ambitious. As I met uh, several board members, they were remarkably transparent about how excited they 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 were about the company. Uh, and what was going well and what needed attention. I, I really appreciated that they were balanced in how they described the company. And then um, I met Jesse Levinson. Uh, and yeah, it's one of those things that literally the the first time we met, uh, we walked around uh, Zooks and talked for about an hour and a half and just connected. For our listeners who are not following Zooks as closely as I am, Jesse Levinson is one of the co-founders. Exactly. Co-founder, CTO, and uh, and president. And we, we just connected. And look, if you're going to go to a startup, you can't be afraid of hard. Th- then you shouldn't go to a startup. So I already sort of had baked in that it was going to be hard and it was going to be complex. So that part was, was easy. It was just, can we do this together or not? And then we had multiple, multiple conversations and text messages and, and so on. And yeah, just connected. Well, so... Uh... You were at this startup for a little more than a year later. Um, Zooks is acquired. So what was the experience of being at a startup in the process of it being acquired and not just being at a startup, Aisha, let's be clear, being the CEO of that startup? Well, so one of the things about um, uh, being, you talked about the differences between Intel and, uh, and Zooks. At Intel, you sort of have to, you know, you have, a, you have to put a budget together every year go defend it and deliver against it, basically. At a startup, you have to fundraise. And so that wasn't something I had done before, for sure. And so, yeah, we uh, we had to go put a Series C together. But what was great was we, we sort of turned it upside down a little bit and say, are we just trying to raise another round? Uh, or are we really going to look at what will set up this company for success in the long term, we know it's going to be, you know, a long journey. And what is the best way to do that? You also look at the, the landscape around you. When you're building hardware, right, these are not small amounts of dollars to raise. And then you look at uh, sort of structure of fundraising and so on. So, yeah, we were like, well, if um, um, if one of the big ones that uh, and we're aligned uh, culturally, philosophically, and in terms of the mission and the market, also got interested, something great could happen out of that. And then uh, basically started talking to Amazon. And now it's, you know, you've seen uh, the blog. And uh, uh, that's something we're really looking forward to. What have the last few months been like for you? Look, I mean, the last few months were stressful. You know, you take a lot of things for granted. I mean, we have young couples, for example, where, I mean, they have a small apartment, both work and both need to be uh, online at work. And just yesterday, somebody was like, oops, sorry, my husband's also getting a call right now. Uh, let us figure out a way to change rooms and uh, work together. So, 
And then, frankly, I'm not going to lie. I mean, at the beginning of beginning, beginning of the pandemic, I literally had a moment. I was like, okay, well, that I mean, we work on hardware. We need people on, in the office. We, you know, we have stuff to do. This, what are we going to do? Anybody who's working on something so ambitious that it's going to shift things yeah. has those near-death moments, usually more than one over the course of building a company. Um, so tell us a little bit about that near-death moment. I was just like, I mean, I've never gone, I've been through a pandemic before. Also, remember, you're alone, meaning from a work standpoint. I mean, you have your family and everything, but we, we're not physically together, right? We can't just hop into a conference room and get on a whiteboard and brainstorm and, you know, kind of have a jam session. But yeah, the first week or two, when it became clear that it was going to be shelter in place and it was going to be a while, I, I had that little moment of, okay, this is not, this, this, this is going to be very problematic. Well, that basically. Yeah. But then uh, this is, you talk about mentors and sponsors and coaches. You also have Andy, uh, Andy Grove's uh, voice. <laughs> and Andy Grove is the, the one of the fathers of Silicon Valley, um, the founder of Intel. Yes. Um, and he he was super generous uh, with me and taught me a lot and, and just was there for me for up to five years before he uh, passed away. And he says, you know, um, bad companies die during a crisis and uh, good companies survive. And great companies thrive. They figure it out. And that's what, so first of all, we were like, okay, what can we keep going in the office? So really understanding the shelter-in-place orders, putting a lot of um, things uh, in in place at work. And instead of thinking about uh, sort of the, the well-being of the company in stages, in relay stages, we started thinking about it. And this is an opportunity to set it up for the long term. And this is how we ended up with uh, with Amazon. But yeah, it was stressful. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm still looking forward to when the pandemic is over, uh, going somewhere, you know, fictitious where you get the 5 p.m. margarita delivered to you. Yes. <laughs> we'll all be there when you get there. <laughs> now I'm speaking to you as an Amazon executive. Mm -hmm. How does this change Zooks's aspirations? The greatest gift is that the mission continues. Uh, it continues with a, a great company that has um, we're going to learn a lot from. Uh, we've we've made a lot of strides, uh, and so when when you talk about aspirations, I think that the probability for success is now actually higher. Yeah. Uh, and we look forward to uh, launching someday. We look forward to uh, uh, really transforming uh, transportation because obviously it will move people. That's uh, the market to begin with. But if you can move people, you can move pretty much anything. And really change the, the infrastructure and structure of how cities and people within them operate, live their lives, and grow and, and prosper. And uh, we're looking forward to doing that with Amazon as a, as a wholly owned uh, independent subsidiary. Um, Aisha, anything that you want to leave our, our listeners with as they think about their own careers? I'm sure that people come to you for advice all the time. What is the biggest question that people come with? The biggest question people uh, uh, ask me, and not, not only the biggest and most often, is uh, just how do I uh, move up? How right. do I get to the top? 
what, what do I need to study? What do I need to plan? What moves do I need to make? I think if you make a plan, you're probably not going to get there. Or you're going to get there in, uh, in circumstances that are not good uh, because then you become a prisoner of getting there. And the one thing I say to people is um, just, first of all, know yourself. What are you really passionate about? And you know you found it uh, when you, you see it both in your work life, the traits of it, but also in your private life. So find that thing that no matter what uh, just makes you get up and go do. Then, especially earlier in your career, pick the projects that basically are hard, um, tied to your passion, but people are afraid of them. Especially if those projects are exist because the company wants them to be, but haven't hasn't really figured out how to get momentum, go to those. First of all, if you fail, you sort of expect it to, and you learn okay. a ton. And if you succeed, that will get you noticed, and you get to do what you like and you're passionate about, and you get to do something that's important for the company, and then opportunities will come. Listen up. Don't take the stuff that's easy. If it feels super good and you're excited, but there are no butterflies, probably not something you want to do. That was Aisha Evans. Amazon announced its acquisition of Zooks in late June. I linked to it in my LinkedIn article about the episode in case you want to check it out for yourself. This week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about startups. Have you ever worked at one? Would you consider it? How do you vet them? It's an important question, especially now as so many of us are looking for work or thinking about shaking it up. I hope you'll join me and our producer, Sarah Storm, to talk about it during our weekly Wednesday coffee break. We'll go live, as usual, at 3 p.m. Eastern from my LinkedIn profile. To join us, follow me on LinkedIn or email us for the link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. Now, if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Ferro trust their butterflies about new opportunities. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. I don't know how we're getting out of this anytime soon. No. And, but... in what, and in what, I, I don't think we're going back to whatever, however it was for a long time. I am deeply a tech, techno-optimist. Mm-hmm. And in the same breath, I'm deeply... Like my bet is on humans. My bet is on humanity. And so I don't know how we get out of this, but I trust that we collectively, we will. I also believe in technology, but I I am like forever a believer in the human spirit. I always say, if you could wake up somebody who died 2000 years ago, if you could truly wake them up, I mean, they would be in shock. Right everything that we've done i mean the human spirit and what it can accomplish is just amazing and once human beings see good they never want to go back to what however it was before good